Water from the Mountain. In honor of Minari, what was your quintessential childhood soft drink? I'm Katie Rich, and I didn't really like carbonated sodas for some probably dumb reason, so I was more into Capri Suns, and I did have a handle on the straws. Thank you very much. I'm at Patches, and I was going to say Mountain Dew, which is the choice of the kid in Minari, but now that I'm thinking about it more, would I, would I count Shirley Temple's? I was a big Shirley Temple drinker. Wow. Where were you Sprite going and drinking grenadine. Shirley Temple's? Like out to dinner with my family. I would order a Shirley Temple, Sprite and Grenadine. And then my mom told me when I got older that I needed to stop ordering Shirley Temple's because I sounded like a child and I needed to get Sprite with a splash of Grenadine. It was deeply this, embarrassing. This, my this mom's tracks dragging with, my uh, ass. Our <laughs> Little Things episode. <laughs> just give me I a remember Temple. I'm a regular Jared Leto. Yeah, someone's just going to hit you with the shovel right in the Give face. Hey, my name is Dave with the Seven. Uh, don't watch that movie. It's fine. My name is Dave with the Seven, and the answer is Pepsi, because I like to rep the number two generic soda without stooping to supermarket brands. It was odd. It was an odd part of me where I just liked I liked the runner-up. You liked Pepsi because I, it was not as popular. Yes. Wow. What about when like Britney Spears like became like advertising it, and it was like had its whole like late nineties advertising push thing? You just I never had really felt to work I was Britney part Spears into this episode, didn't you? <laughs> wow, I did not know that uh, David. I never was really thought Justin I was Timberlake. part of the Pepsi generation. I thought I was more rooting for an underdog, but just too young to understand what an underdog you was. A Kardashian mm-hmm. out there giving Pepsi to the do, Black Lives do, Matter protests and to the cops. And to the. Cops. I mean, that's actually <laughs> my the shameful secret is those are my life rights I sold away from wow. the commercials. So. It was such a beautiful moment when you did that. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, and I'm David Ehrlich, and it's a good question. I Once upon a time, I used to drink carbonated beverages, and then I had a flat Coke in South Carolina when I was 15 or 16. Don't blame South Carolina. For no, I'm, really I'm, thanking, I'm thanking South Carolina because I was, I mean, I, I, I'm still, I, I think, not the uh, pinnacle of the male form, but I was definitely even less so, if you can imagine, back in high school, and uh, I owed it to my habit of drinking, like, you know, way too many Cokes a day. Uh, and I was just like, this seems like something that I could cut out of my life. And I have not had a carbonated cola beverage since. It's been over 20 years. I imagine, oh. I imagine um, little David as that, uh, as the really young brother from Home Alone. Giant glasses, suspenders, just drinking oh, Pepsi. And, yeah, and ready to wet the bed. No, the I jam. was I was at my most, it, you know, this is not going to square with me saying that I was... Uh, not not super healthy back in high school, but it actually right before high school was my most athletic phase. <laughs> so it was a real roller coaster. But uh, back in those days when I was drinking carbonated sodas, I loved cream soda. I can still taste it if ever I close my eyes and imagine Dare to Dream. Um, wow. So cream soda was definitely my my uh, drug of choice back then. But yeah, Coke is uh, if you feel like shit and you drink a lot of Coke. It's a really surprisingly easy thing to cut out of your life. If I can do it, you can do it. Health tips from David. I did not see this it's going. Health direction. tip. Like, singular. <laughs> this is the only one that I'm capable of offering. Yeah. Right. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine. I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 336. That's Pandemic 48. It's the week of Wednesday, February 17th, 2021. That's the day that in 1933, almost 100 years ago, the first issue of Newsweek was published. 
Right in the middle of a depression, they decided to start a new magazine. And just one week later, Newsmax launched and has been uh, <laughs> paving the way of American reporting ever since. Yeah, that's true. Um, I hear that uh, even though the countdown to Godzilla vs. Kong continues, our uh, our formal countdown of the show is going to happen because we have a review. Dave, I can't tell you holster how... your your <laughs> a- lightning axe. What's it called? <laughs> He's not. Yeah, Kong sure, is not Thor axe. in this movie. <laughs> I don't he think. He had an axe. That's the whole thing. He has an axe, and it sort of yeah, like looks like Gimli it draws some energy. Thor. My favorite countdown that I'm part of, and I don't want this to turn into a segment, so right after this we get to the review, is on the Godzilla subreddit. Some guy took all the spines off Godzilla's back, and he's adding one more onto the back every day until Godzilla vs. <laughs> like Kong comes out. Spines are calendar. <laughs> and, and, well, he you know negotiated so there are enough spines and started it early enough, but for February 14th, he put a little box of chocolates to replace the spines, so Wow! You go check a... Godzilla. He's getting spines on the Godzilla subreddit. Whatever gets well, you through the pandemic. Absolutely. I have to say, I can't tell you how much. Uh, I don't want to say that the world at large, but certainly our listeners do not want to hear you or really all of us. I don't want to put this on your shoulders. Talk about Godzilla versus Kong because we have gotten a raft of reviews again <laughs> this week. Uh, all of them, whether spoken or not, I haven't read them yet. Um, you have to understand some textually are pleading for us not to talk about Godzilla versus Kong. So let's see what they have to say. Uh, Good 740155 says David Ehrlich is a fungus. He grows on you, boy. I came to Fighting in the War Room by way of the Joanna Robinson podcast universe. When I first started, I remember listening to reviews saying how you'll learn to love David Ehrlich. It seemed implausible as he was a contrary white dude who talked for the majority of the podcast. All those things are still true. Uh, but I was desperate at the time to hear in-depth the sections of movies that included at least one female host. I've stuck around since then and have come to love the dynamics between all these hosts, including David. Katie almost always says exactly what I'm thinking. David has strong opinions that are entertaining when wrong and validating when right. Dave Seven is low profile, but always has something worth listening to when he gets a word in edgewise and patches, is combative and goofy. After listening for almost three years, I can now safely say that it is actually Patches who takes a trophy for the dude who talks too much damn. Uh, for one second I got excited for trophy and then I heard the rest (laughs) (laughs) Um, I especially appreciate the more personal stories uh, like the one about Patches and his desperate need for a trophy it's filling a void in his childhood we'll get there later Uh, we've been getting this year baby slash kid anecdotes are always welcome there was talk in a recent episode about when the pandemically numbered episodes would end and I believe you discussed this weeks ago you all agreed it would end when you've all gotten vaccinated for what it's worth, that feels correct to me as well. Any who thanks, any who thanks for the show. P.S. King Kong should win. I do want to say uh, a very helpful <laughs> review, by the way. Good seven four zero one five five. That I, 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 it's definitely a better metric to end the pandemics when we all get vaccinated than when Tenet came out. However, I do want to stress to our listenership and Patches has run afoul of the uh, pandemic police in the past that those who have been vaccinated can still carry the virus. And so I don't think it is proper for us to act as if the pandemic is over, simply if all four of us have been vaccinated. And as we've said many times, film critics are at the very top of the list of eligible people to get vaccinated. So that might be sooner rather than later. That's true. We will find, I think, you know, a vaccine, a, a pandemic, a post-pandemic America is like porn. You know it when you see it. Uh, well, uh, it, there was actually a good article on, on Vox.com the other day, not to toot uh, Vox Media's horn too much, but um, that was just like the, the pandemic doesn't end worldwide because you get vaccinated, but there are stages to the end of the pandemic, and it's uh, 
the pandemic might end for you and your friends when all of you are vaccinated. And then it might end for your town or your state when you reach yes. a certain level of herd immunity. You know what but I mean? But as like, someone who uh, braved a very anxiety Give people at the light, the, light at the, the end dentist, of the tunnel is what I It's say. true. But as someone who braved a very anxiety-inducing trip to the dentist today and my dentist in this office that had like no protective measures whatsoever and I'm convinced I am now going to get COVID and there were like people sitting in this small unventilated room and one of them didn't have a mask on was bragging to me about – well, not bragging, but she was like, well, I was vaccinated, so I have no fear now. And I was like, that oh, does boy. nothing oh, for me whose mask you just took off and my mouth is just gaping open in front of you. Um, I have plenty of fear for the both of well, us. We're not anyway, supposed to get sprayed by the COVID spray tool at the time. That's like, decline <laughs> um, that right now. This, this may be my final episode on the show. Oh um, if you, Come if on. So you know what happened. Uh, but uh, your points are well taken, good 74015. I actually thought I'd been a lot less contrary since having a kid because I just don't have the energy to pick small battles anymore, but who knows. Um, anyway, moving on, we have two small other axes. reviews. What, uh, like, what evidence have you acquired that makes you think you haven't picked a lot of battles since you had a kid? Uh, David's been going back and listening to the shows and reviewing no, them. No, I mean, this is coming to Dave, terms with the fact is, that he has a uh, podcast. Purely anecdotal and maybe less true on this podcast than it is in the rest of my life, but certainly... In, on, on social media where I've been a, more scarce. Uh, uh, I just have like no interest in getting, you know, engaging in people in hostile, combative or even antagonistic ways. Uh, I feel like I've been, I don't know, less things have moved me hard one way or the other in culture over the last two years. That Fewer I, I, things have moved you? I don't know. Have there, there haven't been like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like have there been X-Men first class level fights recently in the war room hmm. oh but no probably not yeah i mean there haven't been there like hasn't been that we, much happening. there hasn't been a marvel movie might honestly be the key to this mm. of something that we all like and david's like eh. yeah well i mean i and i'm also this is not why as strong so we could we could like <laughs> all talk about malcolm and marie and someone will be like dave and i'll be like it's bad and then everyone's just like we're gonna let dave stand there because apparently he's so, like, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I, maybe I, maybe you've taken just the viewing place. it differently. Well, maybe, but yeah, we all, maybe I'm the grumpy one, <laughs> and I was the one being like, I, yeah, it is bad, but also, you know, maybe we can try and see what it was going for, <laughs> yeah. despite acknowledging that it is definitely bad. Um, who knows? Things are changing. Uh, never a part of it says, and this is a short one. Keep on fighting, but don't be afraid to love. Long-time listener, first-time reviewer. This, in my humble opinion, is an example of the pinnacle of film podcasting. Wow. Boy. Uh, this super group of movie critics, a Justice League of movie critics, if you will, a Snyder Cut of movie critics, oh, and film lovers. That's what you call a group of film critics, by the way, a Snyder Cut. Uh, and film lovers aren't afraid to be cantankerous with each other's various takes, which makes their occasional harmonious agreement all the sweeter, the perfect mix of salty and sweet. Keep fighting the good fight, folks. The good fight on CBS All Access. Boy, <laughs> we have to talk about how that COVID acts. Par- Paramount Plus? On Paramount Plus, climbing Mount Paramount to see uh, season five of The Good Fight. Um, Christine Baranski is in those promos. As someone who was, is she? I missed oh, yeah. her. Yeah, oh, yeah. She she is the the first uh, lawyer to summon she's to summit Mount, Mount Paramount. I can't I can't speak. <laughs> you know she, what I mean. She's in the Guinness Book of World Records for that. Actually, yeah. um, the, as someone who watched all the Good Fight over the pandemic and had no did not know prior to seeing the last episode of it that the fourth and most recent season was abbreviated because of COVID. The last episode was even more shocking than it must have been already. Um, and, then, and whatever, we'll get to it one day. Uh, finally, our longest review of the week from New Year, New Look, New Page, spelled P-A-I-G-E, 
Hi, Paige. I almost went down to four stars after your last episode ever stunt in 2018. Mm. Mm-hmm. I went down mm-hmm. to four stars after that episode, mm-hmm. Paige. So long ago. But due to my <laughs> procrastination, here I am, two and a half years later, finally writing this and back at five stars. Fighting in the war room has become a sort of comfort food through my various, various life changes. Various, various. I think it's like a word that was mistakenly repeated, but it does sound to me like a Sundance movie title, like various, various. Oh, yeah. Together, various, together. various. Mm-hmm. Good work. One, of, very, the, one <laughs> of those is someone who's named various. It's true. Like oh, yeah. Uh, various, various life changes and our strange reality in the past few years. It was an at-home screening of Minari in my Arkansas apartment that made me finally follow through with this review. Shout out to the Arkansas Cinema Society for the early screening. I largely credit Katie, but also David, for hyping up this incredible film for me, like the four of you often do for so many other films and shows. Didn't I Podcasts like yours. Sundance? Come on, where am I? Erasure. Erasure? Erasure? Frazier. <laughs> Podcasts like yours are invaluable to those of us living outside major cities who rely on critics and fellow film nerds to inform us and make us excited about films before we have access to them, as I've done most of my life. Fighting in the War Room is also a nice compliment to Katie's other end of the week film and TV podcast, Little Gold Men. Yeah. This podcast is always... Th- oh, I'm going to put in a special emphasis that Paige did not include. This podcast, as in opposed to Little Gold Men, is always enjoyable. Even when you yeah, guys, yeah. literally the guys, <laughs> shit, and then she says SH and space IT on oh. things I like. Oh, is, she, is that a really clever way of getting around... Yeah, probably like can't iTunes say shit. iTunes? Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, it's in addition to liking our podcast and Minari, I happen to... Think very highly of Paige's intelligence. She spelled compliment in this context correctly, which is something that is a, a tough, lot of people struggle yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, to be honest, it's something I didn't even, I don't even know if I knew about until like four years ago, uh, but I've held on with a death like grip ever since. Um, anyway, good going, Paige. She's but, an associate producer on various, various. Uh, various, various, yeah. <laughs> She's really, yeah, she definitely gets some sort of residuals for that. Uh, but between rolling my eyes at how nitpicky I occasionally find you to be and feeling vindicated when David actually echoes my opinion on something, I've realized that this podcast wouldn't be half as fun or interesting without the Discord. We should set up a Fighting in the War Room Discord. I hope you continue yeah. to record no, together to for a long time. I don't even know what Discord is. I was on it once. It was a mistake. Uh, well, into middle age, if you have to, I'll be here. Paige, very helpful review. I regret to inform you uh, that I think I don't know where the the bar or the basement for middle age begins, but I think all four of us may may have crept into middle age while you were looking. No, um, I don't know if we're well into middle age. Not though. well. I think we have a long time to go in middle age. When does least. that happen? When you I feel you're young. well into it, or when you become middle age? I, I think middle age is sort of like the end of pandemic and porn. Is that you know yeah. when you feel it? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, you know. I was talking to Elisa the other day. I now day take about how, like, nine vitamins like a week. I feel like I'm in the middle age now. Yeah. I feel like I, I'm I, a weird I number take, to take uh, over the course of a week. Seven oh, not, days, sorry, nine, nine vitamins. vitamins a day. That's a lot of wow, vitamins. Wow, really? I take uh, high cholesterol medicine now, and not for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I take wow. like B12. I'm taking vitamin C. I'm taking just like bro The kids vitamins. from the first season of 16 and Pregnant turned 12 this year. Wow. Oh my God. My, my, uh, just to commemorate it on the podcast, even though we were talking about it before we recorded, my son walked his first steps today. Uh, and it didn't until this moment make me feel old. It was just kind of exciting and scary. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yep. We are That's old. About right. I still feel like I'm 18. I think you always do. And then you die. Uh, anyway, um, 
Thank you all so much for leaving reviews. Please, please, please go on iTunes, The Fighting in the War Room, leave us a review. Prevent us from having to talk about Godzilla vs. Kong prior to that movie's release in it anyway. Uh, we'll read your reviews on the show. Thank you. WandaVision is currently airing on Disney Plus one episode a week uh, because it is the Marvel Cinematic Universe's first in-canon television show, says Kevin Feige, president of the Mar- of uh, Marvel now Studios. That's erasure. That is wrong. That's not true. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is canon. In theory, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is uh, canon. Unless it's and been decanonized. In, in theory... Uh, Daredevil and the Netflix shows are canon. Let's not forget Inhumans, Katie's favorite Marvel show. Indeed, Inhumans. That was a show? It was a show. It was supposed to be a movie, but then long story short, it was a movie. They played it in IMAX. They premiered the show in IMAX. It was announced as a movie, and this is all dumb. This is dumb. Phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe kicking off after the Infinity Saga is a uh, Disney Plus show. They Disney Plus uh, decided to heavily rely on the way it successfully marketed uh, Mandalorian season one in marketing WandaVision, uh, which is only different, I think, in that WandaVision as it's um, played out over six episodes that we've seen now is a television show that is not only episodic uh, like The Mandalorian is, um, but is sort of a larger mystery show about what's really happening while also giving us a peek at the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, sort of after Avengers Endgame, uh, which we haven't seen up to this point. Uh, It's an ambitious way to start I've been very much enjoying it, I think, because I expected it to be uh, slightly more vanilla. I expected it, first of all, to look like a Marvel movie. Uh, I expected it sort of to operate a little bit more like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Netflix and sort of like uh, pick a story and do it in three arcs and have a saggy middle where everyone gets kind of sad like Age of Ultron because that's how the Netflix... And uh, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. shows ended up operating because they were uh, pretending, I think, to be more actually television. Uh, As WandaVision sort of unveiled itself more, I think it was really smart to choose this story and this format, which is starting to sort of uh, irk some people. As uh, this week online, there's been a lot of takes that WandaVision might be taking too long and it's about three hours it's aired over six episodes uh um to reveal what it's actually about or if they're fighting a villain or to sort of like make its intentions known so it's still not at this point it's still not as long as infinity war that's correct (laughs) or endgame rather at this point it's still not as long as endgame or infinity war i believe um uh, but yeah it's uh, uh i think Patches agrees with uh, some of this take 
more than I do, but from what I understand, Patches, the gripe seems to be um, not so much that it's, you know, not television, but that the mystery box plotting uh, may be only giving satisfaction to people who are really invested in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or maybe these characters or superhero shows, whereas if you look like characterization versus plotting, if you were to judge this as a not-Marvel TV show, it's slow? No, well, I don't totally agree with that. I, someone was uh, mouthing off online and being like, what? I can't That watch. sounds unlikely. Someone was, mouth- <laughs> someone was screaming online about, um, you know, not wanting to dive into WandaVision because it's like, I just hate having to, like, catch up on Marvel mythology and having to know like who's that and who's that was this katie actually in g chat i uh, maybe um oh no i have felt that way about a bunch <laughs> of other stuff in marvel but not about one division seemed well, appealing to me from the start but i'll get there yeah i mean i think a lot of people have been left like especially after are we talking spoilers here dave are we allowed to talk about what's happening in the show up to this point i think yeah yes. i mean i think yes. so look evan peters, evan peters showed up on the show Playing. We're talking yeah. up. We're talking through the Malcolm in the Middle episode, just for when you're listening. Okay, to this. perfect. We, we, we've yeah. not seen anything past that. That is what is aired. Evan Peters is on the show, and everybody after that episode went, "Oh my God, Evan Peters is on the show." There's a connection to the Marvel Beyond universe. It's not just the MCU now. It's maybe he's playing Quicksilver from the X Men films. And if you saw, if wait, you was saw he that, playing Quicksilver? Well, we don't actually films? know. This is a lot. I, this is probably in the weeds of. WandaVision spoilers, but... Kat yeah. Dennings says he she recast Pietro, and that's the yeah, most information we've got so, about it right now, So I basically, guess. Yes, you know, but we, we know all know Quicksilver did play died Quicksilver in, Age of in the Fox. Like, yes. yeah, it, outside of the world of WandaVision. The MCU version of Quicksilver is dead. Evan Peters showed up. We think he's playing the Quicksilver from the Fox movies. But who knows who's he's... We haven't gotten there yet. But the point is, he, they're making a meta connection, at least. If he's not playing Quicksilver, they're goofing with us. And they're, they're having fun with what people know. But here's the thing. Like, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know that Darcy was in Thor. And you don't need to know that Randall Park was in Ant-Man. All of this is, like, extra. There's not a whole lot of Marvel Cinematic Universe-ness in this show. There's the quality of their movies in this show. Uh, when this uh, When they break the sitcom format, they go to the kind of, like, thriller aspect of this. It feels like a Marvel movie, for sure, but there's not a lot of, like, Marvel mythology. Uh, so those complaints I don't really get, And and but I, I don't think it's too slow to show its hand. I would argue that it's not episodic. Like, there's a lot of chatter online that WandaVision is a return to episodic television because it's week-to-week. No, it's not. Uh, episodic television is actually what, like, The Mandalorian was doing really well. Standalone episodes. Like, The Mandalorian goes and does this thing, and there might be, like, an overarching plot, but, like, it has a beginning, it has a middle, and the end. WandaVision episodes are not like that at all. They are... This is the next chapter in the big m- movie that we're telling in serialized form. I think serialized and episodic are not actually interchangeable, and I understand the criticism that it's, like... You 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 kind of you you brush against the the serialized nature of it. Masquerading is maybe episodic, and you're like, get on with it, just show your hand. And they need to be well, nine episodes long. But I think just in terms of terminology that you're using, I would say like uh, what had been irking people about some of the languages people were describing it either as episodic or installments. And what those indicate to me is it's like there's some, but then uh, and there's some, but then uh. But WandaVision is telling a continuing story, serialized, 
but each episode by its nature of what it's trying to do is you know focusing either on like one era or one turn of events so that's that feels more like a serialized story uh, than an episodic story. I mean, lucky for me, I enjoy all the elements of WandaVision. I really like the sitcom spoofs. I like seeing what Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany are like doing each week performance-wise. That is fun to me. The amount of mystery that's in there is is fine. Like, I'm, I'm hooked in my own way because I like that nerd-ass shit. Uh, when, uh, when things are making connections and there might be, I don't know, the fucking devil is pulling... Wanda's strings theory. Okay, great. Um, I'm into that. But at the end of the day, each episode is watching this woman work through trauma and ha- like resurrecting the dead and masquerading in like Stepford Wyvian manner through the different sitcoms. That is entertaining to itself. So I can understand people who would say it's episodic enough. Like. Let it let it go at its own pace because each episode does have something to bring to the table. Uh, it's not just the mystery box episodes. Yeah, I think it has paid attention to character more than I didn't really watch any Marvel TV, so I don't really know what I'm comparing it to. But I, I'm invested in the relationship between Wanda and Vision in a way that I never was watching the movies for sure, in a way that I did not expect. So the way that it's using the sitcom format to establish them as a family and as a couple, and to make the like I don't care. About, I got you know there's a tweet that's like Wanda Vision needs to reveal its big bad. I don't care about that at all. I'm invested in those two <laughs> and what they figure out and how their relationship seems pretty doomed and how he is figuring it out and she is trying to hold it together and like. I want to see what happens with them. And everything else is kind of secondary to me. And I think that's a pretty remarkable success for something that is, A, this high concept, and B, if you're listening to, like, the spoiler shit, and our friend Joanna is on the Still Watching podcast with Vanity Fair. Like, she dives into so much of that. I'm like, oh, none of that ever occurred to me. I'm I'm glad I know it, but it is not what I'm watching the show for. But it's also Um, not that... Balancing all of that at once, which is impressive. It's not that deep. Like... No. For all the... I mean, I see a lot of conversation about, wow, they're really getting to the core of trauma here and everything she's lost over the series. I don't really feel that, to be honest. Um, I don't think this show is very deep or interesting when it, has to, when it comes to its exploration of, of trauma and the like, psychology of the Wanda character. I think it's a pretty easy blueprint, kind of the scaffolding to set up the parodies and set up the intrigue of the mystery. I've been watching Search Party. I just binged this show over the last I, like, two I'm, and a half, I'm three just, weeks. Um, we're I just on the first... Okay. Don't worry. Don't Lisa worry. and I just started watching. I, I'm only going to, in broad strokes, say, wow. I have never seen a show or maybe even a movie that's just like, I'm so on the edge of my seat. I'm so... Like, these sh- characters are being... The anxiety levels, the tension levels, the, even the comedy in, in working toward getting to the root of these characters my god i I haven't seen something working that deeply in a long time and wandavision is not that show it's like it is a character focused show that seems like an alternative to the bombast of of recent marvel movies but it's not that deep it's just entertaining right i mean it's just it's just an interesting choice in the world of superhero spinoff shows it's always been we're going to give you like this look at the world you've never seen before, or we're going to give you a, a, you know, this hero that you've been waiting for. And they're going to like form a team. It's never been, we hear you that there's a short shrift on some female consequences in our previous work. What if we dealt with that? Which is what my hope is for WandaVision when we get to the end of it. And it's less, Oh my God, here's the new villain for phase four. It's the devil or whatever. <laughs> and more just like, 
yeah, we did this for Wanda, and we we're going to do this with Black Widow too. You guys just haven't gotten to see it yet. Right, uh, we get to have a, a, we get to have a, choice. a TV show that's about Wanda and Vision, and like her resurrecting her dead husband, and probably having to give him up again. Like yeah. that's enough and, of stakes for. And thus far, they haven't had to punch anyone. I know, and the Great. the stakes of it, like I I do value that, and you know, having watched the Avengers movies, but also just like having fun with it, like the. You know, and I know comics have done this for a long time, and it's not me for not reading them, but when you watch all the Marvel movies, and it's like they all are really in a formula. Like, they all kind of work in the same way, not the same level. And you know that you can do whatever you want with these characters who can do anything. Like, I just love watching a character familiar from one thing thrown into a completely different world, and I want them to do that. I mean, The Mandalorian works in the same way, right? Like, it's a wholly different story told in the world of Star Wars that you're familiar with. And I'm, I'm excited that Disney Plus seems to be an opportunity for them to do that in these universes that have a ton of potential. We, we talk a lot about at Polygon how the most popular comics on the web and, and that people talk about in like in forums or fan fiction circles. It's like people love romance and, you know, the coffee shop AU, right? Where it's just like, here's the two characters I know having a day in their life or like having a, a conversation, not fighting crime and not life or death stakes like most comic books are. And then even though that... that in, there's such interest in like romance comics. You'll never see a DC or a Marvel comics entertain that because they have to keep it at a level of like action packedness or moving the massive narrative forward. They can't actually give what most comic buying fans want because of of history. Um, and this is because actually Marvel. That would be that yeah. would be a dumb episode, and people would be like, "Get to the fucking point!" Right, right. And that's what I. I well, that that WandaVision is a little stuck in the limbo. I think like it could actually come down even further. I think like it could be more character centric, and that would still be interesting to me. Um, but it's a move. Do that it's a move future. in a different direction for Marvel, yeah. certainly. Yeah. yeah, I think about like what I remember of those two characters from the Marvel movies, and as we know, my memory from them is not great. But like, they have this one scene together in like Edinburgh in the beginning of the, Infinity War. That one, um, and they're just so nice together. And you like they establish this whole sense of them having been in a real relationship for however long. And I'm just so grateful that they took the time to expand that into this weird but very affecting relationship on the show. Dave, let Way me to ask take you. Let me ask Paul you one... Bettany, who was cast as a voice actor. And Elizabeth Olsen, who was a broken baby warrior made by Joss Whedon, and mature them into WandaVision. It's really... Dear God. I'm, I think, if anything, people are assuming this series is smarter than it is with all of its, like, over-theorizing. So I'm expecting, like, a little bit of You're backlash after the end of it. You're saying nerds are giving a Marvel property too much credit for this doing something that isn't just fucking lasers from the sky? This is I'm also shocked. what happened with Westworld. Like, this tends to happen with any sci-fi show with... Uh, um, some mythology behind it. I'm convinced, though, that Catherine Hahn will be there to gently usher us comically through the ending, whatever it be. I mean, so. the problem, too, is that Kevin Feige spent a lot of the time in the lead-up to this show being like, it connects to Doctor Strange 2. Don't worry. My eyes kids. will never, never stop <laughs> rolling over the chorus of people saying how amazing it was that Marvel made a movie about a talking tree in the summer of whatever it was when Guardians of the Galaxy came out and all these Americans went to see it as if it wasn't just like fitting into the Marvel paradigm and they were like fucking Bellatar over here, but whatever. Wow, I didn't uh, know we were going to diss Guardians so of the Galaxy for no reason. Well, that movie is... I, I, no, no, there's know. nothing to diss. I like that movie fine. The sequel <laughs> It just doesn't more. have anything to do with WandaVision. I'm, I mean, no, I'm just sure. saying it what Dave is talking about. You're saying people... people give Marvel more credit than they deserve as a default. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, yes. Dave. Oh, well, yeah, it's... 
betting on a winner. Here's a wrap-up question for you. Make a prediction for me. Is every Marvel show on Disney+, Plus, Marvel Studios proper, going to be a big movie cut into chunks? Or do you think that it could actually be Mandalorian-esque, like old TV-esque, episodic, almost kind of like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was? Uh, No, I think they're all going to be chunks. Yeah. I think they're all going to be limited runs. We might get a WandaVision season two, but it'll be like a phase five. We're talking or about phase Loki six season thing. two already. I mean, Loki season two has been picked up, which is good, but I think most of these uh, were conceived pre COVID as things that could live individually on Disney Plus and not have to draw you necessarily to the yeah. movies. And I don't think we've collected enough data about. Uh, whether you're, it's going to require people going to the movies for them to switch that up yet. So I think at least this year, uh, maybe up through Hawkeye. See, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I know, had some changes done to it, but I don't think it was to make it more like for a season two. I think that's a one shot specifically. So I would say no. What about animation, though? Like down the road, like do some standalone Marvel animated shows. I mean, they're but, doing a Marvel whatever. animated show this summer called What yeah, If. Yeah, What If is going to be a lot of fun. But that's, oh, right. That but again, that's not an anim- that's not a like serialized thing or an episodic thing. It's not like the Batman cartoon or the Spider Man cartoon from the '90s or something. That's going to be this segment an is now longer than Endgame. <laughs> David uh, probably won't do animation because those are entirely different rights. Ah, see, that's that's the David. Go put David in the hex. Okay. Send David it- to Vista Del Mar. Expand the hex to David. <laughs> Turn him into a circus. I don't know tent. what that means, but it sounds scary. That's, good that's just out of, is wait. Do they? Is that a Twilight Zone reference that they make? They make the a hex? lot of Twilight Zone references. No, the circus, the kid turning people into not circus tents. Yes, circus yes, they are referencing specifically that effort, episode. I didn't know of the Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone reference. That's interesting. Oh, okay. okay. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Uh, well, my two old friends, Barb and Star, uh, as you may have heard, have gone to Vista Del Mar, and boy, has their vacation been a wacky one. Uh, <laughs> the hot new movie that all the kids are talking about this week is called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. And uh, Polygon got the hype train going by saying it's all We got it's like a already... Jordan Hoffman making fun of David Ehrlich making fun of Jordan Hoffman. <laughs> it's basically an episode of film critic WandaVision. Um, but Polygon says that it's a new cult masterpiece already, an instant cult classic or whatever, jacking off, jizzing and whizzing left and right. And so like now uh, we're on Linda Richmond. <laughs> so my, I mean, Linda Richmond. Jizzing and whizzing uh, is a Jordan Hoffman classic. Jizz wins, yeah, j- no, Jizz wins is classic. I just verbified it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so they make this movie, right? And it's very much in the. Someone described it as like a feature like adaptation of the Target Lady bit that Kristen Wiig does, which personally sounds like uh, a layer of hell that Dante conveniently forgot. But, uh, you know, it's a wacky comedy and some people out there are uh, real horny to fall over themselves for anything that is slightly absurd in the feature length space. And we're all desperate for funniness and as controversial a take as I'm, you know, going back to what I was saying in the, the 
reviews segment to start this episode that I haven't really uh, poked the bear too much recently. I think as far as I'm willing to go on Barb and Star is that it's fine. Um, you know, it's a movie, Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig, uh, the brain trust, or at least part of it, behind Bridesmaids. I'm now having another movie that's just directed by some random guy. I'm sure he has a lot of cred in the comedy world. His name did not immediately appear to me. Um, he directed a it. documentary about the Dana Carvey show for Hulu. Sure. Too funny to fail. Um, and, Green. you know, they play these two middle-aged women, two friends, a movie about female middle-aged friendship. It's also very, very wacky. And their names are Barb and Star, and they work at Jennifer Convertible, as you do. <laughs> and they uh, get fired because, or let go, because Jennifer Convertible no longer exists in this world. I couldn't tell. I asked I asked Elisa, and she didn't know off the top of her head either, if Jennifer Convertible itself in real life still exists. It does. I own a Jennifer Convertible was... couch. So it was bought like three years ago. Yes. But, okay. uh... um, but they they decide to go on a trip. This place is Delmar, which uh, the element of this that I did not know about, uh, I don't know if it was any of the trailers, I hadn't seen any of them, um, is that Krista Wiig is also playing another woman who I described as three different eras of Bjork rolled into one. That's um, and uh, all in the all in the 90s and maybe the Vespertine era in the early aughts. But, um, and she is sort of the evil villain who for reasons relating to her childhood wants to destroy Vista Del Mar and her henchmen um, slash the man who is uh, unrequitedly in love with her is Jamie Dornan. All who he is, wants to uh, do is be in an official couple with an her. Official couple. Official yeah, couple. Yeah, and he is, uh, you know, he's been leaning into comedy unexpectedly between this and I think the funnier than he anticipated uh, old, what was that movie called? Wild, <laughs> Mountain, Wild Mountain Time. Wild Mountain Time. time. Um, <laughs> is that a and, comedy? Uh, it was supposed to be a romantic comedy. Um you know, and it's uh, it's funny that it exists at the very least, but this is uh, definitely more comedy. It feels a little bit more pointed and successful, his character in particular. And it's a very wacky comedy, and there are funny moments, The fa- my favorite of which involved the, the steering wheel of a submarine. Um, and there are a lot of jokes that land kind of in a... That you say like that's funny or chuckle sort of way. Um, and there's a lot of dead air. I, it always drives me up the fucking wall when people make comedies and they just like can't find buttons on scenes and they just let out something that feels like a first draft go to screen. Um, it just baffles me. Wait, it's like something... what? What? In this I mean, movie? I could not remember them or else it would completely defeat the point that I'm making. <laughs> but um, All they, right, wrap uh, it up. This is a minute. But anyway, it's it's totally fine. I just wish that the movie. It's a very wacky comedy. I just wish that it God were like fifty percent. I wish that it were no. like fifty percent wackier. I um, want to, I want Patches to go first because Patches, you were the first person to tell me I had to see it. By the time I watched it, like the Twitter momentum had started building for Barb and Star. I think I was very primed to be like, ah, I get to sit in my home and laugh at a movie, which I have not watched like any comedies in a year, which I think is a big part of why this movie hits you exactly where it is. Uh, but yeah, it's it's Austin Powers, and I loved Austin Powers when I was thirteen. I love it now, and I was delighted by Barb and Star. Yeah, it's Patches. Austin Powers. It's Zoolander. It's MacGruber. It's pop star. Like it checked all those boxes for me. Um, it felt. I like think that's watching... fair because I don't like. I David. I think, David. I think hey, David should fi- talk more. Let's let him finish. Yeah. I mean, Patch is being facetious, but I sat there I for twenty minutes of fucking Wandavision. So let me have my 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 voice. I paid twenty dollars to watch Barb and Star last night for this. Uh, so uh, no, but those like those are and only to make this very agreeable point, which is that like people love Pop Star. I thought it was fine. People love. Uh, MacGruber. That's good. Set the bar. Zoolander is a masterpiece, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. I remember thinking in 2001 that it was 
genius. Um, but I thought Barb and Star was fine. I don't know. If those movies are your taste, maybe you'll be right there with Patches. Here's going to be my one thing on Barb and Star before I let Patches in at home. The part in the beginning of the movie, and so our, our friend Jordan Hoppin, who keeps coming up, was tweeting that he made it 15 minutes in, which I think is a mistake because I think it, start, it gets soft to a slow start. And I think the jokes it? in the beginning about no. them working Jennifer Convertibles and the parts where the jokes is that they are layman in the Midwest, I don't love. Like, I, if there's a movie where, like, it's just making oh, fun of people, like, funny. wearing bag, bad clothes or something, Look, I get Every my time they say the word culottes, it's funny. I mean, it's, the word culottes is funny. I think but word, I think uh, once they get, once they leave their town and the joke is not so much about them and their taste, but about the entirely weird world that they're in, it really takes off. You know what's funny is them on the plane and they all the different, and this is, this is just good okay. com- camera focused comedy is all the different angles that the camera takes to finding them in the same seats talking about the Trish joke. Trish. I don't think is funny, but I think that like the way they shoot that sequence is funny. The way they oh, do the, the repeated dates later is funny. Like that stuff I find funny. I thought the stuff with like Vanessa Bear and their, their talking Wrong. group. That Vanessa Bear like, God so many, among people. Vanessa Bear, I, everything she does tends to make me laugh. It's so uh, funny. This, Stop I just it. thought like, those were so underwritten. Every time they cut back to that, I was like, "You it's couldn't funny find when she a better soup. stinger here." Uh, the hot dog soup sucks. Oh and my Gale, god! Stop. Poor this Gale. movie is genius. I gotta stop you. This movie <laughs> is so fucking funny. I was laughing. Michelle and I were just sitting on the couch, totally unexpected. Like we were just laughing out loud, beginning to end. Like the bits in Jennifer's convertible, Jennifer convertibles, funny. Like they're talking about throwing Thanksgiving dinner and Jennifer convertibles. This shit is funny. I'm not going to sit can't, here and, just, you can't and argue like, with tell comedy. you all the gags. I mean, but like, I, wrong. I yeah, hilarious. that's fine. I'm, I can't tell you that you didn't laugh. I mean, like, it's, yeah. it's, 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 uh, I won't sit here it's fine. I I just I just wish that it Comedy had been masters. a better film. But uh, it's fine. No, I enjoyed it. Two... Jamie Dornan is excellent. His oh, he's excellent. He there are two dances. brilliant musical numbers in yes. this movie. Neither of which they submitted for the best original song Oscar. They submitted the song Wait, I which Love is movies, the second one. The one where they're being welcomed to the uh, hotel. I mean, that, oh. that one is fine. It's just like a very nice and silly large. But that's uh, another where it's like I love that that was happening and it just felt like the air just sort of slowly what? comes out of the tire <sighs> I don't yeah, I don't know I how to defend a comedy there. that's this weird um, but I, I really like every, did you think it, it was really weird felt when Marvel like watching, made a movie about a giant tree it felt watching like two actresses in their prime doing the weirdest things that they've always wanted to do I feel like they knew these characters on such a deep level that they've been like performing them on SNL for 20 years and they and they're obviously bespoke for this movie they I don't know where they've been doing it maybe they do it at the groundlings back in the day but like I just this was beaming out of them and I was totally along for the ride like every weird there's only one bit in the movie that I didn't like and Morgan what Freeman shows up um, oh wow, I was about to say I, that's that's the only part I didn't it's really not like. it's but not it's like actually Morgan Freeman minute. it's not actually Morgan it's not Freeman. Morgan Freeman uh and uh okay. it is I, I was about to say I wanted more stuff like that because I thought that's that so was weird funny. that's like um, the one bit I didn't like <laughs> Uh, I, like I thought, the other there's cameo, an extended scene where they is, dance to the "My Heart Will Go On" remix. Like this shit is yeah, just that, gold. the dancing to "My Heart Will Go On" remix. That's where I really okay. Richard I, Cheese I mean, is in the movie. Uh. Richard Cheese is in the movie. The anything to do with "My Heart Will Go On" is of course perfection. You will not get any argument from me. Um, I thought the other cameo that it was. I guess at this point we're doing spoilers, but I won't. It was funny. Um, there's a lot of funny stuff in this movie. It's just it was not. There at are that two great cameos in for this me. movie. One of which is at the very, very end, and one of which is in near the end. Uh, I won't spoil either. They're both perfect. It's a, it's much better Kristen Wiig work than uh, Wonder Woman 84, for sure. Apparently, it's only like seven bucks on Prime. 
Really? If you rent it. This is what my friend told me. Dave, will you watch Barb and Star? Have we convinced you? Yeah, maybe. I tried to tune out when you started arguing about specific bits just in case I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I think it's fair. Hang on, I'm looking it up on Prime. It's definitely not $7 on Prime. I see it for $20 no, on eight, Prime. No, it's 18 which is a weird That's weird. Price. I see it for $19.99. Yeah, it's marked down to, I guess, because I'm logged in. I don't know. Judas and the Black Messiah, it's now on HBO Max and in theaters. Warner Brothers would like to be very clear that these movies are coming out in theaters at the same time that they are launching on HBO Max. I assume if you've seen it, you probably saw it at home. It is directed by Shaka King, who is a fairly up-and-coming director who previously made Newlyweeds, a movie I have not seen. Played at uh, Sundance, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it played at Sundance. There's, there's an interesting positive. article in the New York Times uh, this past week about how that movie fared at Sundance commercially and Shaka's career after that, especially because it was the same year as Fruitvale Station. Um, and it's oh, sort of an interesting study in and contrast. And Brian Coogler is a producer on Judas mm-hmm. Black Messiah, I think. Anyway, um, so stars Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya. Daniel Kaluuya plays Fred Hampton, who uh, was the leader of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. He was killed when he was 21 years old by the police and is coordinated by the FBI. Uh, you might remember this as a subplot in The Trial of Chicago 7, which is... Or you might not. <laughs> or you might not. It's a small part of The Trial of Chicago 7 because Fred Hampton was not... I, I don't even remember the big parts of Trial of Chicago 7, although I would say that Aaron Sorkin does not write small parts of anything. I would say that Fred Hampton's story is one that is significant and says a lot about the way that the Black Panther Party was treated by American law enforcement and has been I, I certainly didn't learn it in school, and I think we might all be in the same boat there. Perhaps that's changing now. Um, and the the way that gets its title is that Lakeith Stanfield plays this guy who became an FBI informant so that he could infiltrate the Black Panthers and eventually led to the circumstances that caused Fred Hampton's death. And it's uh, it's about the relationship between the two of them. It is, it, I think, it would be fair to call a Fred Hampton biopic, especially for someone who was 21 when he died, he did a lot, uh, and Daniel Kaluuya is really showing a lot of the charisma and kind of the force behind uh, his a personality. A biopic? I mean, is it about him enough to be a biopic? Well, he's being campaigned for supporting actor at the Oscars, so maybe not. If it was a, yeah, I was um, to say, if it's a biopic, he would be. But Kaluuya is going as supporting? Yeah. He's that makes sense. He's not too. the star. This movie is about... The Informant. This movie is about Bill O'Neill. This is... I mean, it's a two-lead well, movie, but it's kind of an having, academic question. The conversation we're having now, even in this academic context, is something that was clearly central to the actual making of the movie. And part yeah. of that story, the New York Times article I was talking about earlier, is Shaka talking about screening, uh, screening, Jesus, <laughs> Sean Connery all of a sudden, screening <laughs> a uh, earlier cut of the film to other black filmmakers like Ava DuVernay and Barry Jenkins and getting some negative feedback that too much of the story was weighted against Fred Hampton. It was more towards the the Judas of it all Um, and taking that into consideration, trying to find the right balance for it. So it was definitely, you know, something that's very much integral to the story. Yeah, and I've seen reviews kind of slam the movie for being 
too much about the FBI or too much about, yeah, Bill O'Neill's infiltration as opposed to like the movement and Fred Hampton's tremendous work in that position. But I think the movie is pretty successful because of that choice. I mean, it's dramatically successful. It's it's tense. It's like a Donnie Brasco. This is a thriller. Uh, it's not a, I wouldn't say it's like a biopic. I feel like that makes it too sound too dry. Uh, well, you're is, just assuming I'm using biopic as a pejorative. Biopic sorry, is a pejorative. Fine. As long as you pronounce it biopic, I think it's fine. I'm not from upstate New York. It's not biopic. This is not a hill I care to die on because I don't think it really matters. Uh, I yeah, I think that having it centered on because the thing is William O'Neill, who's the FBI informant, is a person who has a conflict. He has growth to go through over the course of the movie. And Fred Hampton, the way he's depicted in this movie, he's young, he's starting his life, he's got a girlfriend, he's going to have a baby, he's got a ton of big ideas, many of which he did not live to get see realized. His character does not change over the course of the movie which i think is a tricky thing to navigate and especially hard when you're making when you're depicting an important person on screen for the first time but i think that makes it hard for the movie to move in a way because as as wonderful as daniel kaluuya is and i think as successful as the script is like that he fred hampton is less of a character than kind of a presence and so you need the fbi informant and kind of his torturous decision to do what he does to to give uh growth over the course of the story for the characters Wow. Dave. I mean, I like all that, but I also see what everybody's saying because the movie makes some choices to sort of share these narratives. And it's almost, you could almost kind of split it in half because it isn't really until (coughs) Martin Sheen and a whole bunch of makeup is basically like, now we need to kill Fred Hampton, that it sort of switches. Less Um, than Leonardo DiCaprio, Warren J. Edgar, though. Uh, yes, yes, that's true. Actually, no, it's probably actually when he uh, Fred Hampton goes to prison for the first time, and he sort of actually has to be taken out of the story uh, in a way that we focus more on Bill O'Neill, and then that sort of also splits into a little bit of Jesse Plemons, and then the back half of the movie, I get how it works dramatically, but it starts working, I think, a little bit more uh, like a traditionally um, plotted out drama. Uh, there's, you know, a, a monologue poem that is set over a, a abbreviated set of events to lead to a violent confrontation with the police with one of, like, the Black Panthers. And it's all good, I think. Uh, I just, I feel like they're two great two-hour movies that you could make in this story and sort of by squishing them both into two hours, I I think it um, dilutes my ability to necessarily latch on to either of the characters. Because at the beginning, we're just given so little about Bill O'Neill. He's in the system after his very first scene. And then after that, we get increasingly less of just how Bill deals with things. Uh, there's a really early scene after he gets his nickname where he's sort of like happy in, in his apartment and you could sort of act a moment where he gets to see that, you know, that wasn't actually genuine, even though he had got like the thrill of being a real Black Panther at that. And right when I want the movie to be turning more in that direction is sort of where it also splits off to follow Jesse Plemons' FBI character who... Um, uh, Jesse Plumbins plays a very good uh But it's not like struggling off to follow him. It's not like a big plot line where he's kind of doing his own thing. 
I mean, I don't think so, but after his scene with Herbert Hoover, the scenes, uh, I think, between uh, Bill and his FBI handler focus a lot more on the Jesse Plemons character having this torturous moment uh, than I think is necessary. Um, it's not. I, I like this movie a lot, and like David was mentioning with the New York Times article, everything I'm talking about was a choice, and so it's hard well, for me to say anything outside of like I wish there was just more of these things because I think the performances hinted a lot more on the the edges, um, and that I know the historical narrative. Um, was responsibly abbreviated. So I'm not saying these as like gripes, more just observations of where the movie sort of took a turn for me that I could feel while it was happening. I will say also that, you know, it sounds like I'm, I'm going to be sending a vertical, uh, you know, laughing at people for saying that Marvel was being so weird um, and then turning around and giving kudos to this movie for what it's able to pull off in the studio system. But, you know, one of the things I really responded to about this movie is just like how, sort of raw and, and tortured it is for a movie that is being put out by a major studio and thrust to the Oscar race. Uh, and there are compromises as there are in any movie throughout it. But um, I think, you know, it's unsurprising what some of those may have been. And that same New York Times article uh, references Martin Sheen's appearance and one of his big scenes towards the beginning of the movie um, as being one of the, the compromises to the studio demands. But um I mean, I, mean I, that- the, I I like the idea that those are adding to the movie, that this is this huge systematic thing. Like, it's not that Bill O'Neill actually has a choice. There's top-down pressure. If it wasn't him, they were going to find another 22-year-old dude. Like, I like that's what it's adding to the movie. I just feel like the performances could have got me there and a little bit more about his circumstance outside of this exact moment would have brought me there because... For me, it really, Bill O'Neill's character comes, like, I finally understand its place in the movie at the end title card, which mm. I'm not going to spoil, but yeah. it's like, There are a lot oh, of end title cards. The, the one about him. Yeah. Patches. To, yes, no, there are a lot of end title cards. I was observing that there's just a, a tremendous amount of title cards at the end of this movie. Yeah, at the end of this movie, all of a sudden the score stops being something cool and radical and turns into a whole bunch of violins moaning over title cards and clips just so you get the right message heading out of it, which is, again, fine for, like, I think the most exciting thing about Judas and the Black Messiah for me is it kind of fits in uh, with Mangrove especially, but definitely with Trial of Chicago 7 just by, like, subject matter where I'm so happy that even in the breadth of this podcast where we're talking about Oscar-worthy cinema about black narratives, we're not talking about another 12 Years a Slave. We're talking about, like, the Black Panther Party. We're talking about social injustice in the United States. I'm so happy there's a bunch of these movies and that I like and dislike different parts of them and that we've been able to, you know, elevate this little part of mainstream film going. I hope a lot of people... Go, actually end up seeing it just because it's on HBO Max uh, who wouldn't go and buy a ticket I for had Judas a and the Black Messiah. I similar feeling watching this movie where I'm like, this is very, it's a basic, feels very basic. Um, yeah. And the filmmaking is pretty straightforward. Um, but these stories, especially of this era from this perspective, are just like being part of, of the black culture in this moment is so underrepresented. Like, I just haven't seen a movie 
about this or like about from this perspective at this studio level or like where the score or and the, and the soundtrack gets to be just full of these jazz standards and just like i found the music and the juxtaposition of of image and sound to be just uh totally fresh every time mostly because it's so underrepresented it just really i don't see a movie like this very often well that's why when you say that the filmmaking is like kind of basic like i don't think i fully agree with that like i think it's following the beats of kind of you know like a gangster and infiltrates or a you know fed infiltrates a gang format like i think shaka king is talking about how he like mass as a gangster movie but like the score is really dynamic it's got all these like pretty thrilling scenes throughout it It, like has a lot of really radical ideas that come directly from fred hampton in the movie like the way that it kind of is expressly like socialists from the very top and like the work that he's doing is like that and how that comes in conflict with this guy uh bill o'neill who's like basically just in it for the money the entire time like the tension between the two of them and last week on Little Gold Men, my colleague Cassie DeCosta came on and talked about that in a lot more detail. And I hadn't rewatched the movie before I talked to her, but I did rewatch it before this. And was just really noticing that, like, capitalist versus communist uh, structure in there that's, like, kind of, like, an undertow of the story. But I think it gets at a lot of the, like, the thinking for Fred Hampton that, like, I, as someone who did not know a lot about him, like, I was, I was surprised by how much I could learn about his work and what he wanted to sure. do, even within the structures of this movie. I'm, I guess I'm very I mean, happy. I'm, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just oh, very, say, sorry. Okay, yeah, no, no, really, I'll go first, and then I'll let you go. Yeah, you go. Yeah. I'm very happy with how this. We're movie... looking at each other, having a civilized conversation. We still can't not talk over each other. Okay, no, I'm really try. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that this movie was able to present uh, a lot of aspects of Fred Hampton without necessarily dulling them down or lying about them. Uh, like it even builds to like a lot of his kill all the cops stance in a way that you know, is sort of constructed to make the audience explain, which I appreciate. Uh, in terms of, like, if you're going to have a movie about a radical uh, socialist Black Panther, I'm glad it didn't come out uh, softening him in any sort of way. Yeah, definitely not. And Daniel Kaluuya adds so much to that, his his whole presence. He's such a movie star. Um, He's so good but in like, this movie really connected he has the the character has tremendous warmth i think he could get out a room and feel like um like a monolithic character you could treat every word like it's being delivered like poetry but some of the most interesting scenes with him are him walking into like the medical clinic they're starting or just like being part of family and being like really connected to people he does have an interesting romance um with uh deborah johnson played by dominique fishback who was in um oh my god what was that netflix movie where everyone has superpowers um what you know another <laughs> movie where she, everyone has super pa- Project and Power. Ne- Project. Oh, remember that very yes. memorable <laughs> film. She's dealing uh, she, superpowers. Dominique Fishback, uh, if you want to see a good film that yes, she's in, uh, and there are several, check out Night Comes On. Um, she was also in The Deuce, which is not a film, oh, know, but uh, she was quite good in. Anyway, she's, um, I think she's really good here. She's playing a, a poet type, um, and that romantic connection is not like um hollywoodized it's it's not sentimental it's just true and raw and i I really like the two of them and their dynamic there my my point earlier was going to be when i'm talking about the filmmaking being basic i'm just like what is is there a sequence in this movie that seems striking to you it's kind of like point and shoot and it's classic in that way i i guess i'm just it's not necessarily a visual film it doesn't have sequences it, it's it manages, a lot of telling it, it manages to pull off a gunfight raid firebombing with 
good geography and it manages to light all these characters mostly successfully. And I would say <laughs> those two things. I mean, they're like, there's the, this, like when um, Fred Hampton is giving the speech in like a church or hall or something and Jesse Plemons shows up there in the crowd, there's a huge amount of energy in that scene that is not mm-hmm. just in the performance, that's editing, that's like, I got, the way I, that film is. When I say mostly structure. successfully, I don't want to be like, there are scenes that are like badly lit. I just wanted to give some room I, to Java felt like the contrast is a little off. I, I feel it. like you guys are kind of uh, underselling the movie a little bit. I, I mean, I think the I think directing is the directing is pretty I, ferocious for the most part. I mean, the first like fifteen minutes in particular really grab you by the neck and are, are so engaging. And I mean, I hope you working. said fifty because that's the number I agree with. I, I said fifteen, but I agree with first fifty. I was just speaking like specifically about those couple of opening scenes. Oh no, there's just, but, a, once it starts um, moving, there's like there are some amazing cuts. We've sort of like already mentioned the score, and then like it really fucking cooks. Yeah, I know. I was saying like I, I was saying not once it starts moving. I think I'm saying really in the beginning, it's it's, it's so strong. Um, but uh, I, I just think it's such a a nuanced and and. Uh, illuminating look at this chapter of history of Fred Hampton, who has never really been, as Katie was saying in the beginning, something that was taught in the history book, so to speak, and everything that infers. Um, and it doesn't deify him, uh, but it also really, I think, respects and, and sympathizes, as you certainly are made to understand, uh, if not before, then by the closing titles with his his mission, with self-determination, and, and all these things. And um, I think it, it finds... A lot of American history and heartache unpacking in uh, in Lakeith Stanfield's performance, which is is tortured, and you have Jesse Plemons playing this the sort of the devil um, in a way that he has done. You know, this is not the not his first rodeo playing this kind. Yeah, of... Yeah, that scene where uh, Bill O'Neill goes over his apartment and there he's smoking cigars and hey, take as much whiskey as you want, just like. This is um, this is biblical. This is this is really scary. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this stuff is such. A, it's just such a textured. Um, you know, it, it, there are a lot of balls in the air, and it's hard to juggle all these things, particularly when you're working with somebody else's money and trying to bring a wider audience. I mean, you could have heard me say whiter. I don't know. I meant wider, but uh, I think both apply in terms of Warner Brothers thinking here. But I, I think at the same time. This is a movie that is shining a light on a, an area of history that is not um, that is kind of revolutionary. Not the history itself, of course, which is obviously revolutionary, but the way that this movie is portraying it is uh, not by the sort of pat logic that the watered down. Um, there are uh, only two sides of the story, sort of way that this movie. You know, this this story would not have been told by a major studio twenty years ago, but hypothetically, if it were to have been, it would not have been with this degree of forthright um, sort of force of will behind Fred Hampton, the Black Panther movement, and uh, uh, and all. I just think that like there's a lot going on here, particularly in the sandbox where Shaki is playing that is really impressive um, and augurs a really exciting era of uh, larger budget filmmaking and the kind of stories that... I mean, it makes it more interesting. It's not well, everything you're describing is not really part of the text of the movie. But all this, to me, it is. I mean, it all. It's, I'm not just complimenting the movie for the fact that it exists. And I apologize if it sounds like that. I think like it's all of that energy is sort of transmuted into the way that it's shot. I mean, it, like it does feel 
Well, what's despite, a sequence that stands out to you then? Is there something like, is there a I mean, we've cited several of them. I mean, the, the beginning, the introduction, um, at the very start is one such sequence, but really like the, you mean the to big... Bill O'Neill? I don't think we've mentioned what that is, actually. Are you talking about the carjacking? Yes, yes I am talking, yeah, yeah, talking okay. about the, the carjacking put a, sequence. Put a button on it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, I mean, like introducing him in cinematic terms as sort of the hero of the story is a really fascinating choice. Um, even in the sort of like anti-heroish vein, because I think the movie trades in a lot of like sixties and seventies uh, tropes. But um, you know, the big a lot of the speeches that Fred Hampton gives, um, a lot of those scenes with Jesse Plemons, even if you know the movie might be unfairly weighted towards them, and that we feel a little bit cheated out of more Fred Hampton, particularly when he's in prison. Um, and uh, I, but I think all of that stuff, all of this sort of like radical energy that what the movie's doing is to me very visceral. And I think there's something about how the movie uses its its budget, which is not you know um, a Marvel movie budget, but but for a story like this, that these days we would more readily see worked into something of a Sundance level budget. It's the muscle with which this movie is made is kind of radical in its own right. It, it conveys as best it can that that same energy of not. Um, you know, not going along with the sort of white party line that Hollywood had been towing in its own way for so long about keeping radicals like Fred Hampton in the, the villain column um, and uh, and really looking askance at the FBI and Pro and all these things, which, um, you know, short of Oliver Stone movies. Yeah, I don't know if Clint Eastwood's going to like this movie. Um, exactly. I, mean, like, but that's just, like, I was watching the, uh, the Parallax View, um, the Alan... Uh, I, I always was growing up saying Pacula? Uh, pa- I was always saying pa- Pacula, but I do think it's Pacula. Um, but and that's one of those things my brain may never be able to relearn. But I was watching; it's one of his the political uh, paranoia trilogy that he made that included all the president's men and Clute, and um, it is about something very different than uh, it, it takes place in the wake of all these political assassinations. Um, it takes place, I believe, in the late. It starts in the late 60s and for the most part takes place in the early 70s. But uh, it courses with this same sort of energy that I think has really dissipated from studio filmmaking over the last 30 or 40 years or so. And this, in its own terms, brings that back um, in looking at the fight for racial justice in this country and in a way that, you know, would have been foreign to a lot of studio filmmaking back then. So. I, I think I agree with a, that. I yeah. mean, I, I think I think the script brings it to that level, and the performance is bringing that to that level. And um, I, I do think there's a it could have transcended maybe a little more with a, a certain type of visual panache. But one thing you're making me think, David, is that complaints that maybe it's it's lopsided that it's not. We needed more Fred Hampton. I wonder if that's actually a success of the movie on some level. Like Fred Hampton gets locked away. The Black Panther Party starts deteriorating because Fred Hampton has been locked up by the FBI, essentially. And he's so charismatic. He's so influential. He's so important to this political moment that like when Daniel Kaluuya disappears from the screen uh, and that character disappears from the screen, well, that's what happened. (laughs) And and things started falling (laughs) apart. And I wonder if, and the movie captures that pretty well. And I wonder if the the void people feel is actually the emotional work of this movie uh, rather Hmm. than a failure of the script on some level. It's also just like the sorry, sorry, Katie. I was just gonna say because I, I felt like I was so inarticulate earlier, and will probably continue to be. But I was just talking about what makes this stand out from. It's not. I, I I wouldn't call it a biopic, but using that language to describe a movie like this, like it's not even with all of its end titles, and, and even with the sort of continued fight for justice that it leaves you with. Um, 
it's not fit. It does not fit into that biopic vernacular in terms of like the kind of dramatic uplift that it leaves you with and the, the spirit of, and then justice was served. I mean, this feels very antithetical to the way the rules of most historical fic or historical nonfiction, um, historical fiction um, that that you know Hollywood turns out the the whole nature of the story is very much just like the system is fucked it's systemically unjust and extremely racist and violent against uh, you know black people and the black power movement and all of these things and uh, it that feels if you put this up against like any kind of biopic or biopic adjacent movie of the past 30 years I think you would see just how clearly this movie speaking a different language. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I was going to say about the, the presence of the FBI, like, I don't think it ever feels hand-holding, but, like, the extent to which the story of the 20th century was told as the FBI is the good guys who are keeping things under check, like, it, we cannot overstate that. Like, that is yeah. the history we were all handed. And I think it helps to have the FBI have the emphasis beyond there to being like, here is the version of the story you're familiar with seeing, and then cut to the Black Panther Party and seeing the logic of how they formed and seeing the free breakfast and seeing how we like brought together all of these rival gangs and worked with a bunch of people surrounded by a Confederate flag. Like the contrast between the two of them, I think is really important for if you are learning this history for the first time, which I think like there's definitely plenty that I was learning for the first time, even if I had at some point in my adulthood learned that the black Panthers were not all gun toting radicals, which I think is what right. we were for the most part taught in the, or even if you're not learning it for schools. the first time, these are the bad guys in the movie. Like, go the show the bad guys. Make them the bad yeah, guys. Yeah, and show just how systemic and how, like, logical. Like, you know, Jesse Plemons' character, like, I don't think I had, like, he prosecuted the guy, like, the movie Mississippi Burning is about him. Like, he is, like, defending the rights of, like, the, the civil rights activists who were murdered in Mississippi. Like, he was working on the good side at one point and then turns around and does this. And to him, it seems completely logical. And I think knowing that and seeing how that played out helps you understand how this all happened that way. Yeah, I... I um... I totally lost my train of thought. Of what I, was I mean, say. I, I I think it's an awesomely executed movie in the traditional sense of the word, where it causes me awe that they were able to execute this movie. They <sighs> oh. were the way they were, but I I I, I see what it, like it's just halfway through the movie we start jumping off to other point of view characters. It's the same complaint for Jesse Plemons as for as I was saying before the Black Panther that has to get in a timely altercation with the police. By like sort of an accident of carrying a gun around some dude he didn't know that good that well is fine. It's a perspective shift. And yeah, when it's, it's just these two dudes making the best against like a system that wants them both dead, it is a much snappier, quicker thriller movie. And that's me. the trick with like a, a story based on what what's true, like about an organization where there's just like a lot of people around and a lot of things mm-hmm. happened in order to lead to the death of Fred Hampton at the end of it. So yeah, it, it, that I feel like that happens with a lot of movies that are based on. And what is this way. movie supposed to be if not a perspective shift? I mean, that's what I was looking for earlier. Was you know, per what Katie was saying, I think she was right in the money, and that like this is kind of a counter narrative. I mean, that is patches might look at that sort of. Uh, a claim and think that it's not part of the text of the movie and that we're, we're talking around its context. But I think that for a movie like this to be conveyed as emphatically as it is and uh, unapologetic, even in light of some of the studio interference that may have shaped part of it um, and shapes all movies of a certain level, uh, I, I think that, you know, pushing back against that narrative at this scale and with this level of conviction and clarity um, is against the idea of the FBI were the good guys for 100 years, which is 
even if we all know in reading and, and, and you see in the fringes of, of in footnotes of history books, I think the version that the movies have handed down to us and the role that Hollywood has played in that story has been so overwhelmingly powerful as far as shaping our imagination that to see a story like this be put in this context at this level and given the platform that it has, I think it is more powerful by virtue of being a studio movie than it would have been had it been a small indie grasping for some sort of um, larger platform that still wouldn't have been at this level. And so uh, I think, and, and the filmmaking has the, the chops to back that up with the the power that it needs, at least for me. And even when it gets scattered and it does, um, I think it, it ends strongly enough. It comes together with the same sort of, you know, violent force of will that the. All, the all I'm really did. asking for from creators is to make confident choices, and this movie does. And I don't mm-hmm. think anything that we brought up necessarily detracts from it, because I think we could all say this is amazingly well done. I think, I except for Patches. To, uh... Patches wants some, uh, like that shot in Black Panther where it turns upside down, so you know he's the bad guy approaching the throne. Patches would just be happy if, if you know, all these characters went to Vista Del Mar and sang about seagulls. No, that's not Patches, can saying. I bring it back to Jesus Christ Superstar for a second to really uh, put us back on the same page? Yes. So I think what I wanted in this movie was the Judas moment at the end of Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, I like I mean, obviously it's right there in the title. Like, and he I think- comes out of heaven and sings? Just something like the emotional torment of Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar, and maybe the Bible too, for that matter, is really clear. And I think (laughs) the problem with the historical record is that William O'Neill and Fred Hampton are not best friends. Like, it's not a personal betrayal in the same way. Like, you're not going to be able to get that and be true to the story. And I think when you get toward the ending, and Lakeith Stanfield is so good at depicting just like uncertainty and insecurity and like, like trying to pretend he has status in this group that he doesn't really belong in, but like, you know, not knowing he doesn't have it. Um, But there's something about the, like the wrenchingness of decision that he made. And you, you know that he felt that even if he doesn't really express it, I don't know. It it doesn't, it doesn't hit in the way that I wanted it to. It's not continuously drilling down into the end. Like you want to, that might, you want yeah. to hit the core of Bill by the end of this movie, a, a little. But also, more. you want it to not be about. You want it to be about Fred Hampton. That's that's. But the I trick. think you would it's need that... you would need to really unpack Bill O'Neill at the level that Patches is looking for. I think you would need a sort of like last days like approach to like build that like the the final day in Bill O'Neill's life, as is alluded to in those hmm. haunting final cards. I mean, you'd really need to sort of peel back the, the lid and get under the psyche there. And yeah. that's difficult. I think part of what's interesting about the movie's approach to his character is, and what Lakeith Stanfield's performance does for us, is gets us like just far enough of the way there for us to imagine the, the middle distance that's left. Um, I think, you know, part of the approach here is saying that like, there is a part of this guy, whatever was, was, you know, pitting him against his own people and was putting him in his own interests first that is sort of unknowable. I mean, these are conclusions that we can draw, but that sort of self, you know, self-torturing approach, that feeling torn up inside like that and still going through with it. I mean, like, these are things that are sort of harder for us to wrap our heads around than anything that Fred Hampton was doing and fighting for. Yeah. And, like, that is, I think, what's so interesting about the movie is that you look at him, this this revolutionary figure that was all but written out of the history books and that the FBI um, murdered and counted as a win, you know, and the American wanted the white America to celebrate and see him as or the more unambiguous figure 
Um, and yeah, I think that's just a really interesting approach. Yeah, I think I feel myself drawing a distinction between like a very good movie and something transcendent for me. And a very good movie is not a bad thing to have, especially when it's on HBO Max. It's like me and Barb and Star, which was fine, but you know, yeah. it was, it's really, not transcendent. Yep. Judas and the Black Messiah, Barb and Star, really, it's uh, they have so much in common. Mm-hmm. Maybe Barb and, or Star would have been better. Oh, is it like Barb or Star goes to Vista Del Mar? Not both yeah, you just them? choose one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like they, only have enough, they only have enough money to send one, one film. You I know it's about female own. friendship, but you know one of them could be left <laughs> behind and the other can be enjoying themselves wistfully on the banana boat with uh, the, the tit, their tit flapping, tits as they do. Yeah. I'm going to end this by saying confidently, I think Daniel Kaluuya is going to win an Oscar for Judas and the Black really? Messiah. You heard it here. I don't know. Maybe not. You heard it here on Fighting in the War. You heard That's right. The podcast where I make Oscar predictions. Him and Glenn yeah, Close. He's not in the same category. What's wrong with you? No, oh, he's going to win supporting, and she's going to win supporting. <laughs> I thought you were like, he's no, going to beat Glenn no, Close. Like, a, that's not how the Oscars are. It's, it's a Barb, Close it's a Barb or Star. It's a Barb or Star situation. Yeah, only they, they made a contract, actually. Daniel Kaluuya and Glenn Close go to Vista Del Mar. <laughs> After the Oscars. I watched that movie. Holy shit. Daniel Kaluuya could be in a good comedy. I mean, I know Get Out is a comedy in some ways. But anyway, I, think, I feel like he could be in a real good, like... Put him in the Barb and Star sequel is what I'm saying. <laughs> that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Next week we're talking about Minari. We're Minari. We're, we're playing. Minari. We're... <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. I should probably rewatch Minari. It's been... A year and Over so a year. much time. Yeah, um, give the movie some money now that you could give it some money. Yeah, it's watching it is still a little tricky. It's in the A twenty four screening room. It'll be wide on VOD by the end of this month. Um, so we're jumping again a tiny bit, but um, it has. You know, see it if you can. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, if you're sitting at home, working from home in these tough times. You know, to fightinginthewarroom.com and listen to an old episode. We got all so many episodes to listen to. What? Fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm seeing from Great for IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter, tweeting videos of my son walking and shit. <laughs> Not much else. And I, uh, my Barb and Star go see Avatar joke. Um, that's about the sum of my output recently. I really wish Twitter had a dislike button when I saw that. <laughs> really? You didn't like Barb and Star go to see Avatar? I mean, I would see Avatar with Barb and Star. Um, you should ask my followers uh, about the dislike button. They seem to have found something similarly <laughs> effective over the years. Uh, you can find us all on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Please go on there, leave us a review, read it on the show. It'll be great fun. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DA7E. I'm also on the Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. Like Patches was saying, we have a lot of old episodes up at FightingInTheWarRoom.com. For some reason this week, I thought, what? maybe I should know what I said about Avengers Age of Ultron. Because I remember saying, this movie feels like it's part one of a much longer story. And all of a sudden, I'm getting, I, I'm getting recommended to watch Avengers Age of Ultron at the end of WandaVision. Isn't that weird? Go check out our reviews. Dave when is right. that? What year is that from? Tron? The Avengers Age of Ultron. Whatever year that what came year out. 2014? 2014? Wow. 15? Getting... 
getting up there. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting up we're there. We're getting up there. We're getting up there. Crap. Um, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast. I do recommend if uh, you want to hear more about Judas and the Black Messiah, last week's episode where I, okay, my co- colleague Cassie DaCosta talked about how communism was this underrated element in what made the FBI want to go after Pat Hampton. So listen to that. Um, and then this week I talked to Tahar Rahim, the uh, star of the Martanian, uh, and he uh, smoked while we were on Zoom together, which is the most French thing that's ever happened to me <laughs> on Zoom. So uh, unfortunately you won't be able to hear that part. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, uh, where you can tell us how you think you pronounce Alan Pacula's name, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Minari, what was your quintessential childhood soft drink? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. I'm done.